0: Holy Father, we come before you now in the midst of worship. We thank you for ministering to us. We thank you for ministering through us. and We ask now that you'll prepare us. As the word is brought near. To receive it by faith. To embrace it, to walk in it. And that you will help us in our unbelief. Grant us greater, deeper understanding of the privilege it is to be recipients of your word. Minister to us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Welcome, visitors. We're pleased to have you with us this morning. If you've never been here, uh, this portion of the worship service is the uh, proclamation of God's Word. This is the preaching of the Word. We love preaching of the Word. Um, by the grace of God and the power of His Holy Spirit, if you don't like the preaching of the Word today, you keep coming and you will love the preaching of the Word because you will see that it is the key to spiritual growth, the Word of God. Uh, We pick up where we left off. We are in Romans 10. We've been working our way through Romans for maybe 14 months now. And we're going to conclude chapter 10 this morning, and that is verses 18 to 21. That'll be the central focus. Uh, We will cover ground that we have already looked at in the past, Um, to help clarify what's before us this morning. Verses 18 to 21, I want to pick up reading on verse 13. The Word of God reads as you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed... What he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is unbelief of the word brought near unbelief of the word brought near and we need to look at this friends and we have to ask what lessons are we to learn from Israel now that's where we're going this morning we will end with that. What lessons do we as the church of Jesus Christ learn from Israel? Now, as you know, Paul has been building his case in order to answer the question, what about the Jews? What about Israel? What about those who were given the most who believe the least? What about them? Well, in today's text, we see again Paul's method of kind of cinching things together after a long discourse or explanation. Do you not love his explanations, beloved? Now, if we were to go back to chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but just to bring to our memory, he concludes in chapter 3, after explaining sin, after explaining man's dilemma, after explaining the wrath of God that is upon unbelieving men and women, he cinches together the idea that God both requires a sacrifice for sin and also provides the sacrifice. Paul, again, he cinches together the idea... That God requires a sacrifice, but he also provides the sacrifice. Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say, and on the cross, God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3, 25. Revealing that he is both just and the justifier for all who believe and only those who truly believe. In chapter 4 and following, he talks about the operating certainty of justification by faith, what? Alone. This is not some New Testament innovation, Paul declares, but this is the same method used by God throughout redemptive history to save every sinner that's ever been saved. Going back to the Garden of Eden, it's always been according to the grace of God. And most specifically, described through the life and the ministry of Abraham. Salvation in Christ Jesus has made us dead to sin, alive to God, releasing us from the curse and the terror of the law, providing for us, according to his grace, a new relationship to the law. Therefore, having been justified by faith, the scripture says in chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues by presenting the real-to-life struggle with sin in chapter 7. And that real-life struggle with sin begins at salvation, right? There was no struggle before we were saved. You struggle with sin because you're saved. Before salvation, no struggle. Once one is saved, sin becomes a battle. And then in chapter 8 and verse 1, he declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, Romans 8, For God has done what the law can by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's two categories of people. Believers and unbelievers, those that walk according to the flesh are not saved, those that walk according to the spirit are saved. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with our own flesh, the point and context there is that there's two categories of people in this world and only two, those who have the spirit and those who do not. And then he provides for us, also in chapter 8, in verses 29 to 30, an edited version of the Ordo Salutis, that is the Latin term for the order of salvation, The doctrine that deals with the logical sequence of redemption. Notice verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Foreknow means to set his love upon you. That's his predetermined will. Therefore, predestinating you to a time and a moment for which he will call you to be saved. That's the effectual call. That's when one is born again by the spirit and at the moment you are justified that is declared free from all blame you have a righteous standing before God and when God sees you he sees his son because you're in the son therefore you're guaranteed glory glory that is the confirmation of being united to Christ As applied by God the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Spirit. Now and forever more. Then in even more detail in chapter 9. Paul is Paul's great diatribe on the doctrine of divine election. Where he decidedly purposes to call his elect from among sinful humanity. As he passes over others pleased as he is, to shower them with his abounding saving grace, leaving other sinners to themselves. In teaching this, he knows someone will raise the question, and they will say, "Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If that's the way he saves people, why should he blame me for resisting his will? To which Paul answers, who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its maker, maker, why have I molded you or made you like this? Now, after concluding his overwhelming case for God's pre-electing purposes, Paul opens with chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we see a proper response to the understanding of divine election. Again, a proper response to the understanding of divine election. It's an attitude that should accompany any robust theology of predestination and divine election, and that is to see the lost brought to saving faith. described in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, unbelieving Israel, is that they may be what? Saved. That's the heart of someone who understands predestination, divine election, and sovereign grace. We don't know who, they, who the elect are, so we preach to all and pray and hope that God will save those that we love and we know who don't believe. Now, any hope for that desire to become reality can only come if the word is brought what? near as his grace is made manifest most specifically by his word being brought near therefore verse 8 the word is near you in your mouth in your heart and then he defines what that means he's he's citing deuteronomy 30 verse 14 which means he says in parenthesis that is the word of faith that we proclaim it's always been about faith paul says Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, everyone sitting here this morning, that is, anyone and everyone who is saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, is saved because the word was brought near to you. Amen? The word was brought near. And according to God's divine purpose, in a moment of time, he caused you to believe. He caused you to be born again. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands. And that a heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. Belief, trust in Christ. Now, the Jews long ago had this message of faith through the scriptures. The scriptures were theirs. Therefore, he cites in verse 8, Deuteronomy 30. And this truth was ultimately fulfilled in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became flesh. That word came as close to us as can possibly be. God became man, the word, the Logos. He is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word being brought near. So it's his word then that must be proclaimed. It's Christ who must be preached. He must be announced. He must be declared. And those to whom that word has been brought near now have the responsibility of bringing it near to others for which we looked at last week or the week before. So Paul then launches into a series of rhetorical how questions. In In verse 14 of chapter 10, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And that's playing off his statement that he makes in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's desperation. Calling out to God is being poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt and realizing one is spiritually bankrupt... They have nothing in and of themselves that can save themselves. It's not part God and part me. It's all God. I'm nothing. I'm totally depraved. And you call out for mercy. When God brings one to this place, they call on him, and they in turn, the word promises, shall be saved. Preaching. Proclaiming. Learning as we did, it is through the foolishness of preaching that God gathers his elect. It's not up to you. You're not going to save anyone. I'm not going to save anyone. Never have saved anyone. No man has saved anyone. Paul never saved anyone. It's the Holy Spirit of God that saves sinners. We just proclaim the truth. We proclaim it. So, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me ask a question. What is the number one need of this church? What is the number one need of the church down the street, across the county, across these United States, worldwide? What is the number one need of the church? When you ask that question, many answer it in in most obtuse ways. Some will say, well, it's a good, solid music ministry. It's a vibrant youth ministry. Or a, an effective children's ministry, or it's home groups, or it's counseling, or it's orthodox liturgy, or it's discipleship. Any of those? None of the above. Discipleship is very important. It's vital. But it's none of those things. The church's number one need is the indisputable, essential need for biblical preaching. That is expositional preaching. Expositional preaching means to explain the text, expound the text. Those other things are desirable, but it's the word preached. It is the primary need of every gathering church. Paul's final word to his beloved Timothy... ...as he was awaiting his own death sentence... ...was this... ...preach the word. He didn't say just preach. All kinds of people preach. They preach their personal programs. They preach about their political preferences... ...or their philosophy of children's education... ...or social agendas... Preach the word, that is, preach the Bible, expository preaching, exposing the scripture, explaining the text, because that's the power of God unto salvation. The power of God is the word of God explained unto salvation. And it doesn't stop there. You must continually hear the gospel. You must continually, as the people of God, hear the whole counsel of God. Paul says this is the most serious business with which you have to do, young man. Timothy, preach. In his last letter, before Paul would be beheaded, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, I charge you in the presence of God, And in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living of the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure what? Sound teaching. So what will they do? They'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's why these lunatics on TV who preach another gospel are so popular. Because people come with itching ears and they accumulate those teachers for themselves and thus in the end reap judgment upon themselves. In season and out of season. You know what that means? It means all the time. Something's either in season or out. So you just preach all the time. Whether it's popular, whether it's not, you just preach and you preach and you preach. So then, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Preachers need to preach. This word, friends, was brought near to Israel. But it never went out through Israel because it didn't reside inside of Israel, you see. It didn't inhabit their hearts. Religious? Very religious. Israel was the privileged nation of God and they were to be the witnessing people for God and they failed. Okay? Instead they turned inward. They became sufficient in themselves, they compromised their said faith, they became apostates, they became apostatizers. They apostatized. Losing a heart for the world because they lost their heart for God. Did you get that? They had no heart for nations that surrounded them because they had no heart for God. Israel had been given the greatest blessings of people throughout time. Most privileged of any nation of their time. And they were chosen for three main reasons. Three main reasons. Number one, Scripture tells us that in a world filled with numerous deities, they were God's one people chosen to witness the oneness of God. They were there... to to teach on the unity of God. They were to teach on monotheism in the midst of a polytheistic world. They knew the one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the truth they were to take out. That's their first purpose. The second purpose of Israel was that they were chosen to transmit and preserve the Holy Scriptures. That is to proclaim and protect scriptures thirdly Israel was the very conduit that is the ethnic bloodline for God's Messiah the Savior of the world through them the Savior would come blessed above measure the sad reality is that they've been removed from that place of privilege removed So Paul begins to answer the question, what about the Jews? By stating that their rejection was certainly not due to a lack of what? It wasn't due to a lack of hearing, I'll tell you that, Paul says. It wasn't because of a lack of knowledge. But it was solely due to unbelief. You mean to say that you can hear and hear and hear and not believe? That's right. Truth that's not embraced produces hard hearts of unbelief. Unbelief. The root of all sin is unbelief, amen? Verse 18, Paul asks, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth, of the the world. They being gospel rejecting Israel. So it's not because they didn't hear the gospel. It's because they didn't heed the gospel. You can hear without heeding. And I want you to notice here, this is interesting. They heard the good news, and Paul says the Old Testament proves it. And then he quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4. Remember, we read from that this morning, right? So, as you're reading it, you say, "Wait a minute, cowboy!" Speaking to Paul, that's a misapplication of the text because verses 1 through 4 of Psalms of the of of Psalm 19 deals with what kind of revelation. General revelation by way of creation. All people throughout the world stand guilty in knowing there's a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God by that which is created. It's a universal testimony to God's creative powers. This is a universal declaration. So how can Paul apply that passage and say that they've heard the gospel when that passage has to do with general revelation? Well, here's why. Paul is saying, just like God has given witness of himself to all of humanity by way of that which he spoke into existence, so also through Israel, God's message has gone out To the world, they heard Moses, they didn't heed Moses, they heard the prophets, but didn't heed the prophets. He's saying that the gospel, even now in the first century, when Paul lived, has gone out with such force that it is akin to the comprehensive nature of divine election, of uh, divine, I mean, I'm sorry, of general revelation. My theological terms mixed up. They're just as guilty, that's the point. Isn't that heavy? That's heavy. It's gone out with force. Paul went in his missionary journeys, where did he go? What was the first place he went to go preach? Town to town and city to city, and village to village, the local synagogue, because they had the scriptures. He preached. Verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Did they not understand this? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you what? Angry. So to answer Paul's question, did Israel not understand, the answer is no, they did not. No. They didn't hear Moses and the prophets, let alone Paul the apostle. And he cites here Deuteronomy 30, Verse 21, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. Now, context there, the first original context, God was preparing his people to enter into the what? The promised land, that's right. And he says, look, obedience for you will equal life and disobedience will equal death. If you disobey, if you rebel, God says, I will curse you. As a matter of fact, I will make you jealous for those who are not a people, who are not a nation. Hmm. A promise fulfilled long after it was given, and it's provided, we're provided clarity of that in the next chapter. We're not going to get to it today, but just take a, take a glance at chapter 11 and verse 11. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel what? Jealous. You see, Gentiles are a people who aren't a nation. Gentiles are a people gathered from throughout the world, resident aliens, but nevertheless, beloved, nevertheless according to God's grace, notice what we were made to be. 1 Peter 2. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy what? Nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There, Peter takes... Old Testament terms for Israel and applies them to the church revealing a one true people of God. That's you. That's you if you're in Christ this morning. Then back to verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself who those did not ask for me, but of Israel he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, he he, he cites there Isaiah sixty five. Okay, if you will turn there and let's just look at this for a moment. Isaiah sixty five. I was ready, verse 1, to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Context, Gentiles. I said, Here I am, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. Verse 2. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Context, Israel, the Jews. Who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provokes me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. That's sitting in the graves and and, and calling out to the dead, you know, consulting spirits and that type of craziness. Who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat, ...is in their vessels who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. There's the arrogance of self-righteousness. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. And In other words, they're a constant irritation to God. <clears throat> so God in his sovereignty reaches out to a people, not a people... Not a people who were seeking the gospel, but you know what the reality of that is? The gospel was seeking them, wasn't it? Aren't you glad that the gospel was seeking you? That the Spirit of God seeks the sinner? Because scripture says no man seeks after God. Until the Spirit of God enters the sinner. And therefore, the command to seek God is only applicable to those who've been sought and found by God. And this covenant community wanted nothing to do with the true God. And God, in his judgment, goes after a people that were not a nation. And at the same time, here we see an indictment given to Israel. Metaphorically speaking, here's God. God doesn't have hands, but God's standing with his hands open. God is spirit, right? He stands with his hands open. What's that a picture of? To Israel, he says, come to me. Come to me. That's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 23 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, that stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. Today's poem, Sunday, representing the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem just days before the cross. Mark read from Matthew 21 this morning. Now, I I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's three general responses in that narrative, which are very interesting. You had the crowds. These are all Jews, by the way. The crowds are those Jews who came from different regions throughout the lands to come and celebrate Passover. So the crowds are there. And if you notice, they were very positive about Christ. Very positive. Verses 8 and verses 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah, glory, amen. But support of the majority melts away later in the week. It melts away. where to go? Well, it was superficial. The second response comes from Jerusalem itself. The people in the city, people from the city, verse 10 says they were stirred up, meaning to shake or to quake, to be moved to and fro. And what's their response? Verse 10, ignorance. Who is this? Who is this? Jesus had been in Jerusalem before, and people are saying, who is this? So here we see ignorance. In the first account, we see superficiality. And there's another response, beloved. We also know that there were Pharisees among this multitude. And their response was a devious and deliberate opposition to Jesus. Notice in verse 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... ...and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, to the son of David... ...they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying... And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. You see that picture there of a nursing infant? That is a picture of, of, of an infant who's incredibly focused upon her mother's, his or her mother's breast. That's what babies do who are nursing. They're incredibly focused. But this little baby knows enough to lift its head from its mother's breast to draw attention to the Messiah, the Savior. Which tells me that years of resistance and unbelief only hardens a once sensitive demeanor towards the Lord. for those who sit in church all their life and don't yet believe. A nursing baby knows enough to lift its head and turn to Christ. Scripture makes it clear, all three of those responses are inadequate responses and they all lead to one place and it's called eternal perdition, i.e. hell. Mere positive views about Christ, ignorance about Christ, opposition to Christ all lead to the same place. Separation from the grace and mercy of God. There's only one response that is a saving response to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to bow the knee, acknowledge Him as King, our King, believing. Acknowledging Him as Lord, our Lord, believing. Acknowledge Him as Savior, our Savior, believing. Acknowledging that He and He alone provides salvation. Believing, bowing, and repenting. Amen? That's it. That's the only saving response. To those who come to him. It's interesting. Those who carried the outward mark. okay, Key outward. Outward mark of the covenant. Would not come. They refused to come. You know Paul stated earlier in Romans. That circumcision which was the sign of the covenant. Was only an outward thing. For to be a true Jew, one must be one where? Inwardly. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, ethnically. You're true Israel in Christ this morning. You're a true Jew if you're in Christ. So Paul, after mentioning all of Israel's failures, he asks, then what advantage has the Jew, right? You remember that question? If being Jewish doesn't save me, if being circumcised doesn't save anyone, if being a descendant, ethnically, of Abraham, the father of the faith, doesn't save me, what good does it do being a Jew? That's a great question. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? (laughs) Or what is the value of circumcision? Oh, much in every way, to begin with, and here it is, the Jews were entrusted with The oracles of God. The scripture. That's the blessing. That's the advantage. That's the privilege. That's the privilege. That's the blessing of being in a church. Wherever the church is that preaches the truth. The whole truth. The oracles of God. This is his word. This isn't my word. This is his word. This is their greatest privilege. It was given to them, they were entrusted with this, and it was to be accepted by faith, obeyed and held in honor of the one who spoke it. Yet they didn't hear. They didn't hear what should have been heard. There was no conviction within. They heard it, but they didn't hear it. They saw it, but they didn't see it. Remember the parable of the sower? Called the Parable of the Four Soils, Matthew thirteen. Jesus speaking parables. He says, uh, "He told them many things in parables. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds devoured them. Others fell upon the rock." they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil but when the sun rose they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away other seed fell among the thorns the thorns grew up choked them out other seed fell on the good soil produced grain some a hundredfold, some sixty some thirty he who has ears let him hear he who has ears Jesus said that to the seven churches he who has ears let him hear what the spirit says to the churches Four different soils, representing four different hearts, representing four models of hearing. Four models of hearing the gospel. One is the pattern of resistance. The seed on the side that the birds devour. Satan just takes it away. It it just bounces off. The second is shallow soil, representing shallow hearers. They receive it, but not with saving faith. They receive it perhaps with mere emotion or intellectual stimulation. Maybe with a lot of enthusiasm, but it wears off, it goes away, which shows it was never the Spirit's work. They fall away. When they persecute, are persecuted for, for, for the Word of God, they fall away, they walk away. The third is the weed infested. That is, those people not willing to give up that which is incompatible to the gospel. And the fourth is a heart that is prepared to receive good soil, and it brings forth fruit. So later in the account, the disciples ask, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answers. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown what? Dull. God forbid there be a heart that grows dull to the scriptures. But, verse 16, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They proclaimed it. You receive what they proclaim by faith, amen? Because he's given you ears to hear, he's given you eyes to see, and hearing, beloved, is a metaphor for believing. With joy. Believing with joy. Because many who have never physically heard with their ear ever believe with joy. Helen Keller was blind and deaf, but had ears to what? To hear. Now, oftentimes when speaking about Jewish unbelief, something happens to the church. Do we get the indictment against Israel? Do we see this thing clearly? Oftentimes the church replies, well, we're not ethnic Israel. Well, we're not old covenant Israel. We're new covenant true Israel. These are historical matters that relate to people who are not us. Warning. Warning. We mustn't tune out when we read of any indictment against ethnic Israel. This letter, Romans, was most specifically written to the church in Rome, defining no doubt Israel's apostasy. That's very clear. Nevertheless, beloved, the church always has been and is to this day in danger of apostasy. That is, in danger of falling away from a said faith right into apostasy. Walking away from the said faith. Many individuals engaged in corporate worship of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, who at one time perhaps sat next to you, have departed from faith in Christ alone. Those are some of the saddest stories of my life. Are people who seem to be true believers who this day deny Christ. That's apostasy. Family members we know perhaps grew up under the truth and at one time as a youngster had zeal for God. They don't even believe in God today. That's apostasy. Thus the admonition to Jude, Jude 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have what? They creep in. And how do they creep in? Unnoticed. Who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Many people fall away into false teachings that are all about me, 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 and not Christ. And they're the ones that have the itching ears that Paul warned Timothy about. They build up for themselves teachers. Now it's another gospel. It's another gospel. So the church must be warned and instructed, not unlike Israel, of the perils of unbelief. And this, beloved, is one reason why preaching the word is the number one need of any pulpit in any place that proclaims to be of Christ. Let me ask you a question. When God's word is preached, do you hear God speak to you through it? Okay, does the Holy Spirit comfort you in the faith that he's granted to you? I hope so. Does the word arouse your soul? Does the word of God awaken you out of lethargy? We hope so. Does the Word of God, by the way of the Spirit of God, pierce you? We hope so. Does the Word of God sometimes bother you? I hope so. Does the Word of God many times encourage you? I hope so. Does it trouble you? Does it shake you? Does it strengthen you? It ought to do all those things... For those who have ears to hear those things. Christian, don't be upset when you're troubled. Don't be upset when the word of God rattles your cage. Rejoice. (laughs) For some, all they want it to do is encourage them. They never want it to strike them. And in not wanting it to strike them, they resist it. And they become hardened to the gospel. Amen? I'm telling you. This is what happened to Israel. It's very easy to have sound doctrine without a sanctified life. Some Christians claim a certain freedom of what we call conscience. I have freedom in my conscience, but yet they ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is speaking contrary to their conscience. Okay, you're following me here? Romans 2.15, we read that the inner voice of conscience either accuses or else what? Excuses, And that includes even unbelievers. Everyone has a conscience. We as Christians have the highest level of consciousness because we have God the Holy Spirit. Conscience simply serves to analyze and evaluate our behavior with either approval or disapproval. It's really simple. The problem is that our conscience... Doesn't always tell us the truth. Oftentimes, Christians attempt to justify certain ways of living by declaring that, hey, man, I'm free in conscience here in this area. And since my conscience isn't accusing me, I'm free to carry on as I please. What's the problem with that? We're incredibly skilled at manipulating conscience towards self Approval. Right? Has anyone fooled themselves besides me? I have fooled myself. I told me so. That's the title of a book. I told me so. Christian self-deception. By repeating certain sins over and over again, we begin to gag the voice of conscience quenching the spirit, grieving the spirit, and in turn become hard to the gospel. That saved us. That continues to sanctify us. And is assured to glorify us. And this subtle compromise leads nowhere good. Amen? And to some it leads to the worst of extremes. 1 Timothy 4 some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron that's what led Israel's sin of unbelief this was their perennial problem they failed to take God at his word. They failed in the central truth of belief, believing God. They didn't believe God. They had the book and didn't believe God. Those that didn't have the book accepted the word of God when they heard it. See, that's what he's, Paul's talking about. They had the book and didn't believe it. They heard it, but they didn't heed it. Those who had never heard it, by the grace of God, ended up heeding it, believing. They believed. Confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Belief is deep. Belief is trust. So the church is a picture of Israel. And Israel is really a picture of the human condition. We need not separate these things, right? So today, beloved, there's an opportunity for us to see the peril of being in close proximity to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing the truth of gospel, but failing to believe it, that's one of the warnings that we need to heed, always and forever. And then f- to fail like Israel to take God, <clears throat> God at His word, right into unbelief. The church can be in danger of that by erecting another kind of righteousness, self-perceived righteousness. Erecting another gospel. Or like Israel, erecting rote tradition over God's word. May that never be the case. Amen. So, chapter 10 really closes with an overwhelming sense of gloom at this point. (laughs) Not light. Pessimism, not optimism all of which was brought on by Israel who earned their own doom. Okay? Now, rather than to leave you in in, in this darkness, to, to answer Paul's inquiry for which readers would have been asking, what about the Jews? Let's just look at it quickly for a little foretaste and then you can walk out of here with some hope. Did the word shake you? Did the word trouble you? Does the word build you up and encourage you? Again, it should do all those things. Notice, chapter 11, we're not going to study this, I'm just going to read this. I ask then, verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. you ever feel like you're all alone as a Christian? Do you? Do you ever feel like you're all alone at work as the only Christian? You might be. But you're not the only one in the community. You're not the only one in the world. Elijah thought he was the only one, and he was running from a woman. The threat of a woman. After a great victory, the prophets of Baal, God consumed them all. And then right into a pit of despair. But, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, what? Chosen By God. Chosen by God. Paul's answering the question, what about the Jews? Every truly elect ethnic Jew chosen before the foundation of the earth will come to saving faith. That's a guarantee. All true Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, will be saved. But ethnic Israel... Is he'll go on to argue, all ethnic Israel will be saved, not meaning all without exception. It means all that he chose to save. In other words, he's not going to wipe them out because as a people they rejected Christ. There's a remnant. There's a remnant. You're part of the true remnant, beloved. There are numerous houses of worship, quote-unquote, in this town alone that do not believe. I could take you to a church right now. A beautiful building. One of the best views in all of San Diego County. And I've been here because I perform weddings here. And I've been here because an old neighbor of mine attends there. He met his wife there. They're raising their kids there. They don't believe. They don't believe. Oh, they might recite the golden rule or something. They don't believe in the word God. Of God. They're apostate. But they got a beautiful building. Killer view. Ocean breeze. They're full of dead people. In the good old boys and good old girls club. Not sinners saved by grace according to the word brought near. here. They rejected the word. You're part of the remnant. If indeed you're in Christ. God is always preserving a faithful people beloved so matter no matter how dim or dark or, or dismal you your place, unbelieving family, unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving schoolmates, whatever the case, you are the remnant you are his remnant and he is faithful and will always remain faithful so continue, continue by grace to believe, to believe, to believe amen May we continue to believe by faith. And we embrace by faith that which has been given to us by grace. So may we, beloved, in turn, of that kindness and goodness of our mighty God, live our lives in a way that honors Him, to follow His commands and be obedient because He enables us to do so. Amen? As representatives of the Most High. You are His people, His remnant. He's faithful even when you're not. Amen? Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Paul's incredible ability to teach just scripture after scripture, citing what we know is the Old Testament, forming what we know is the new. And we're able to sit back and look at all of it in context. It is quite an amazing thing. And we see through it all that you are faithful through and through, kind and good and gentle and merciful. Lord, may you build your people up today, all who are here, Lord, by faith, justified according to your grace and the faith you have birthed into us, Lord. Incredibly bless them today, Lord, I pray. Bless them to persevere. For any who may be feeling like an Elijah, Lord, within their family or their workplace or wherever they may be, Lord, remind them that you have a remnant for which they are a part of, eternally secured through the finished work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief. Increase our faith. That we might persevere by faith for your glory, the good of your people, and the shining, a light, illuminating light of the church in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.